This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. Join me, please, in your Bibles in Revelation 22, the last chapter of the Bible and the closing of this rich book. Tonight, we're going to conclude our series studying this revelation of Jesus Christ as we've been considering the majesty and beauty of Christ unveiled in this final book of the Bible. I'll be right back. That's one of those phrases that we use all the time. Uh, We often use it very casually. Maybe we forgot something in the house and we have to run back in before before we come back out. But sometimes that simple phrase can carry a lot of weight. Think of an injured climber lying on the ground, and a rescuer has found him, and he's rushing away to get help, and he says, I'll be right back. Or a fiancé speaks to his beloved at their final parting before they get married, I'll be right back. Or an employee trying to pacify an angry customer rushes away to discuss the situation with their boss. I'll be right back. Or maybe a mother speaking to her child who has been tasked with cleaning her room. I'll be right back. We understand that those words are not just meant to convey information. Along with that statement, there's an understood action that is requested of the hearer. So perhaps it might be an encouragement not to give up. I'll be right back, so hold on. I won't be away forever. Maybe it's a call to action. I'll be right back and things had better be different when I return. Or maybe a plea to the hearer to stay faithful. I'll be right back. So remember me and know that I will come back for you. It might be a request for understanding and patience. I'll be right back. I'm going to try to get something you want or need. So please wait. Well, here in Revelation 22, three times we find Jesus Christ speaking a phrase that means, in essence, I'll be right back. Last time we were in Revelation together, we wrapped up in verse 5 as we were talking about the wonders of the New Jerusalem. Tonight, I'd like to ask you to join me in verse 6 of Revelation 22. There, Revelation 22, we'll read verses 6 and 7. God's word says, And he said unto me, These sayings are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show unto his servants the things which must shortly be done. Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. There's that phrase I referenced in verse 7. Jesus says, Behold, I come quickly. We'll find that phrase again as we read through this chapter, but as you read those words, you likely find a question forming in your mind, one that might seem like a, a dumb question for such a clearly worded vo- verse. What does Jesus mean when he says, Behold, I come quickly? If you take the phrase at face value, Jesus is saying, I'm coming soon, or I'll be right back. And that sounds great. You might think, I knew it. I knew he was coming back soon. But of course, we know these words weren't penned yesterday, or even within our lifetime. The book of Revelation is a few decades short of 2,000 years old. 
and the prophecies surrounding the return of Christ have not yet been fulfilled. So what do we do with the phrase, I come quickly? Well, if you tell someone, I'll be right back, or I'll be back soon, why do you phrase it that way? Why don't you just say, I'll come back at some point. Eventually, I'll return. Well, you include a time frame because you want them to anticipate your coming. To know that you're not going to unnecessarily delay your return. And we have to acknowledge that God is much less obsessed with time than we are. He's not constrained by it. So soon for him might not feel like soon for us. But beyond that, I think Jesus phrased it this way to indicate that we need to anticipate his coming. Because of this and other passages like it, every, generations of, every generation of believers has anticipated the coming of Christ. And many in every generation have been convinced that it would occur in their lifetime. Even now, I dare say that many of you in this room are absolutely convinced of that very fact, that Jesus will come in your lifetime. Though I don't personally hold that as a conviction, I do not think it is wrong that many do. In fact, to a degree, I think that's exactly what Jesus wanted. He wants every believer, since the apostles, to think it could be that Jesus will come back before I die. When we read, Behold, I come quickly, or the coming of the Lord draweth nigh, in James 5.8, I think Jesus wants those words to fill us with anticipation, with the thought, that it truly could be in my life. It could be on this very day. That's the spirit with which he wants us to look at his coming. So he said, I come quickly. And Jesus said this not just once, but three times in this final chapter of the Bible. And he gives us some specific challenges with each promise of his return. And that's what we're going to consider tonight. In verse 7, we're told to heed prophecy. We read it just a minute ago. Jesus says there, Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. And those words are actually really reminiscent of the very beginning of this book. If you go all the way back to Revelation chapter 1, the first three verses, John opens the book with the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all the things that he saw. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. Those verses tell us that we're blessed if we read this book, if we hear it, implying giving attention to its words, and if we keep it. So it is important for us to give attention specifically to this book of the Bible. And we're told that the blessing related to this book falls on those who will not only read it and learn it, but also heed what it says. Like any prophecy, God didn't just give us this book for fun. It's not just so we can indulge our desire to know what's going to happen in the future. It's not just so we can use our imagination to try to figure out what all of these different visions stand for. 
God gave us this prophecy because there are distinct messages that we need to take to heart and live by. It is my conviction that the most vital lessons in Scripture are both clear and repeated. So what clear, repeated lessons do we find in the book of Revelation? Well, there's many that we could bring out, but let me offer three that we certainly ought to heed as we study this book. First, recognize what is coming. Now, that's obvious. We think of the book of Revelation, and we think, what's going to happen in the future? But we shouldn't overlook the significance of that. We need to acknowledge what's going to happen. The time is coming when sin will be finally and fully judged. All will one day be made right. Jesus will one day reign over this earth. And eternity is coming that will be free from sin and sorrow. And as these truths come to light in the book of Revelation, we're shown that there's a sharp dichotomy between the future that can be expected by those who know Christ and the future that awaits those who do not know him. So the anticipation that these things are going to happen and that the dominoes could start falling today is a major wake-up call for those without Christ. You can sleep now, but the day is coming when everyone will be wide awake to the realities of this book. And one day it'll be too late to change sides. For those who know Christ, however, all of that is a challenge to stay encouraged. We as Christians can easily become disheartened because of the wickedness and godlessness of our world. We can too easily become discouraged because of the troubles we face. We can too easily want to give up because of the lack of results that we see. But a clear view of the future, as this book paints it, ought to banish those attitudes. Christ wins. He's not only going to conquer Satan once and for all, but death itself is going to be completely and eternally vanquished. Pain and tears will be forever banished. All that is wrong will be made right. All that is crooked will be made straight. So the temptations to give up or withdraw or become cynical or wish that things could just be different, those urges need to be resisted. And we all ought to stay encouraged and invigorated for the work that God has for us to do. And the message of this book helps us. So heed that message. The, day, the night is coming when no man can work and when the workers can rest. So stay encouraged. But along with that, stay faithful. Just over a year ago, we considered Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And we saw the picture there of Christ as the loving and jealous bridegroom. Through John, Jesus Christ penned seven letters to seven individual churches. And in each one of those, the tone is that of a Savior who deeply loves them and because of that love is deeply jealous over them. He's not willing to tolerate anything that would defile them or harm them. And the book of Revelation and the reminders of Christ's return are meant to be a challenge to us to stay true to our Lord, to continue to do the things He's commissioned us to do. 
You can see them, no doubt, in the eye of your imagination. An engaged couple, tearfully parting ways in the weeks before their wedding. They have to be away from each other for a time, but they expect from each other during that time faithfulness, devotion, and undying love. They promise to write to each other, to keep their hearts completely for one another. They're willing to do anything the other asks. They're eager for an opportunity to show the extent of their devotion. Now imagine that couple after that parting, and later on they're on the phone. And one of many hours-long conversations filled with sweet nothings. But as they talk, the man tells his fiancée, So, I got a new girlfriend. But you don't need to worry. I'm not going to marry her or anything. And I don't text her anywhere near as much as I text you. My heart still belongs to you first. Uh, after all, you're not just my girlfriend. You're my fiancé. And, and so, no need to worry. I'll always love you most of all. Now, I'll let you imagine how the conversation would go from there. But I, we can all agree that what that man is doing is not only foolish, it's a betrayal of trust, and it shows how little he really values his bride-to-be. Well, Christ, apart from his bride and bodily presence, has expectations of us. But are we telling him, don't worry about all this other stuff I'm worshiping in my heart. I might be devoted to it. I might be addicted to it. I might be dependent on it. It might have my life, but you still have first place in my heart. Christ demands of us our faithfulness, our devotion, our undying love. How could we dream of giving him anything else? How could we treat flippantly the things he asks of us, his beloved? And so, with his first promise of a soon return, Christ charges us to heed this prophecy. We need to recognize what's coming. We, we ought to stay encouraged, and we need to stay faithful. Before we move on to his second promise to return, I do want to note just how much weight God places on the words of this book of Revelation. I don't mean any of this to, to indicate that this book is more important than the rest of Scripture. But there is a special emphasis placed on the significance of this prophecy. In Revelation 22, verses 18 and 19, the Bible says, For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book, if any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. Now, the exact import of these verses has been debated. Um, we're, we're not going to dive into the, the specifics of that tonight. I simply want you to challenge you to note the serious language that is associated with tampering with this prophecy this revelation of Jesus Christ. All through Scripture, God sent prophets to his people with messages. He challenged them to, to turn back to him, warning them of the consequences of not doing so. And in a way, we don't have Isaiah or Jeremiah walking around these days, giving us prophecies from God. 
But in a way, this book of Revelation is God's great prophetic message for our day. These last days in which the church has been since Christ's ascension. And God assigns great importance to this prophetic book. We need to read it. We need to heed it. Take a look with me now at verse 12 of Revelation 22. Here we find Jesus' second declaration of his quick return. He charges us there to anticipate the reward. Verse 12 says, And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me, to give every man according as his work shall be. Jesus says, I'm coming back, and what I find on my return will matter. Think of a conversation between a parent and a child. We've probably all been on one or the other side of a conversation that went something like this. Look at your room. It's filthy. I'll be back in 30 minutes, and I don't want to be able to recognize this room. Now, I call that a conversation. Most of the time, it's pretty one-sided. But the parent walks away. The child faces a choice. Clean the room or don't clean the room. They can obey the command or they can ignore it. And each option comes with its own consequences. Obedience will bring a positive result, while disobedience will result in a far less pleasant outcome. Now, what usually happens is the kid starts to clean up and then they get distracted by something that they dig up. But regardless of how it goes, they know that when mom and dad come back, they're going to face the consequences of their choices. Upon his return, Jesus, too, will mete out consequences. He talks about a reward in verse 12. But we often associate a reward with something good. Not every reward is going to be pleasant. Verse 14 does talk about a positive reward. Blessed are they, it says, that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. Now, I want to be clear, this is not teaching salvation by works. In fact, verse 17 of this chapter is one of the wonderful texts in Scripture that expresses a universal offer of the gift of salvation. Uh, it's, it says, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him that heareth say, Come, and let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. That's where we get that phrase that we often use, whosoever will may come. That comes from that verse. So verse 14 is not teaching salvation by works. But it is reminding us that what we do with the commandments of God matters. Those who heed his word and receive him can know eternity in the perfect light of his everlasting presence. On the flip side, there's also the potential negative reward. Verse 15 follows what we read in 14 with, For without are dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and, adulter and murderers and idolaters and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. So there are those who will be without the eternal city. Those not admitted entrance. Those who will share a much different eternity. 
verse 15 expresses that those who do not heed the commandments, those who ignore what God has said, and who live after their own lusts, whether it's by practicing sorcery, engaging in sexual sin, killing others, worshiping false gods, or simply lying, will, as Revelation 21, 8 soberly states it, have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. The reward Christ will bring with him for those who reject him and who refuse his rule is indeed a fearful consequence. So those are the two basic rewards that can be anticipated based on whether somebody accepts Christ or whether they reject him. But there is more to this idea than that. Christians can anticipate rewards specific to the lives that we live for Christ. Consider Luke 19 and Christ's parable there. If you would turn over there with me, I think it would be of value to you to be able to follow along in your Bible. Um, I'll read a, a, a fairly extended passage there. As we consider this subject of the rewards that a Christian can receive. Luke 19 Beginning in verse 12, the Bible says, He, that is Jesus, said, Therefore, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And he called his ten servants and delivered them ten pounds and said unto them, Occupy till I come. So each servant is entrusted with part of his master's treasure. Verse 14 says, But his citizens hated him and sent a message after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. So these are those who reject Christ, which tells us then that the servants in this parable are those who know him. And it came to pass that when he was returned, having received the kingdom, so clearly we're talking about Christ here, then he commanded these servants to be called unto him to whom he had given the money that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first saying, Lord, Thy pound hath gained ten pounds. And he said unto him, Well, thou good servant, because thou hast been faithful in a little, very little, have thou authority over ten cities. Wow, what a reward. And the second came saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained five pounds. And he said likewise to him, Be thou also over five cities. And another came saying, Lord, behold, here is thy pound, which I have kept laid up in a napkin I feared thee because thou art an austere man. Thou takest up that thou layest not down and reapest uh, that thou didst not sow. And he saith unto him, Out of thine own mouth will I judge thee, thou wicked servant. Thou knewest that I was an austere man, taking up that I laid not down and reaping that I did not sow. Wherefore then gavest not thou my money into the bank, that at my coming I might have required mine own with usury? And he said unto them that stood by, Take from him the pound... And give it to him that hath ten pounds. And they said unto him, Lord, he hath ten pounds. For I say unto you that unto every one which hath shall be given, and from him that hath not, even that he hath shall be taken away from him. But those mine enemies, which would not that I should reign over them, bring hither and slay them before me. So we see here a servant entrusted with ten cities, another with five cities, and another with no reward. He's not killed by his master like the rebels are, so I think he is symbolic of one 
who knows the Lord, but who misses out on the opportunity for a reward. What reward can you anticipate? We're called by Christ himself to recognize the reality of rewards. He says there in verse 12, Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me, to give every man according as his work shall be. Let us, um, I'm sorry. We need to live accordingly, faithful to the task that Jesus has left us with. So we've seen two of the times where Christ returns a, uh, promises a soon return in this chapter. Let's take a look at verse 20 and notice the third promise. Verse 20, we are challenged to look to Christ. It says, He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so come, Lord Jesus. Our attention is, in, is turned in this verse on the one making the promise. It is he which testifieth these things. The Christ whose letter this book is. And we must not forget that it is not only chapters 2 and 3 of this book that are a letter from Christ to his churches. It's the whole book. This whole book was sent to those seven churches. And this whole book is for us a letter from Christ. And his name is tied to the promise, reminding us that the promise is sure, but also reminding us it's all about him. Now, at some point in what we've been considering tonight, the thought may have crossed your mind, wait, I thought we were supposed to anticipate the rapture, not the return of Christ. And I would say you're absolutely right. But I do think that it's interesting that the focus here in Revelation 22 for believers and unbelievers alike is on the return of Christ rather than on the rapture. In fact, the book of Revelation hardly even hints at the rapture. And you might think, why would God's Spirit choose to de-emphasize the rapture here even though it's clearly taught elsewhere in Scripture? Well, I think it's because our eyes need to be on Christ. We need to avoid just anticipating an escape from this world and its wickedness. Christ doesn't want his children looking for an escape. He wants us to be looking for him. Recognizing that the day we will meet him is just around the corner. There are a lot of other things we can focus on when we think about the future and when we consider this book of Revelation. There are a lot of wonders of the end times that can, we can give our attention and our admiration to, and it's not wrong to dig into these things and try to understand them and, and wonder about these visions. But back in verse 8 of chapter 22, John became so overwhelmed by all that he had seen, all that he's being told by the angel that he falls to his knees to worship this messenger from God. And the angel rebukes him in verse 9, saying, See thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant, and of the, thy brethren the prophets, and of them which keep the sayings of this book. Worship God. John started to bow down to the wonder and beauty of the angel 
And we might say, how foolish that is. Well, if you met an angel today, don't you think you might consider doing the same thing? And he's seeing all this wonder. He's seeing all these amazing things. And, and this angel is telling him all about it. And he falls down on his face. And the angel chides him sharply and points him to Christ. Throughout this final chapter of Revelation, we're reminded of the greatness and transcendence of Christ. Verse 13, there Christ says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. In verse 16, he says, I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. From beginning to end, it's all about him. It has all been because of him. He is the fulfillment of prophecy. He is the beautiful light of the dawning of eternity. And this chapter takes threads from all the way back in the first few chapters of this book. And it's weaving it all together into one final glimpse of his awe-inspiring beauty. I think it'd be appropriate then for us to take a minute to remember the facets of the inexhaustible wonder of Christ that we've seen revealed in this book over the course of this study. As we've taken time working through the book of Revelation, we've considered just a few of the many amazing facets of Christ's character. In chapter 1, we saw the Almighty God, eternal God in all his immeasurable glory. In chapters 2 and 3, we saw the jealous bridegroom writing to the seven churches, providing them encouragement and challenge. In chapter 5, he came forward as the worthy lamb, the one who died for us, the only one worthy to open the book. In chapter 6, we expressed his promise to be the avenger of martyrs, the one who will one day set the record straight for all those who have died in his name. In chapter 14, he was the perfectly just judge of rebels, pouring out his wrath on those who reject his reign. In chapters 16 through 18, we saw his wrath as the destroyer of the world who will one day wipe out not only the sinful elements of the world system, but the physical world itself. In chapter 19, he wrote in as the victorious commander, conquering Satan at Armageddon and pro proving the fact that he cannot be defeated. In chapter 20, he was the banisher of Satan, defeating our great enemy once and for all and banishing him to the lake of fire for all eternity. Also in chapter 20, we saw, he sat as the enthroned king, reigning for a thousand years during the millennial reign and then forever in the new Jerusalem. In chapters 21 and 22, we caught a glimpse of the light of eternity as Christ provides the everlasting source of light for the beautiful and perfect city that will be the eternal home of his people. And he, this unveiled Christ of the book of Revelation, is coming back. In Matthew 25, Jesus tells us a fictional tale about ten virgins. He tells us that they took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were wise, and five were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. Then all those 
virgins arose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you, but go ye rather to them that sell, and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. Afterward came also the other virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Watch therefore, for ye know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. Are you ready? The events of the book of Revelation are going to happen. He is coming again. And there is nothing unnecessarily holding Christ back. He is coming quickly. And so we need to pay attention to what this book has to say. I hope this series in the book of Revelation has caused you to realize that the person of Jesus Christ is right at the center of all of it. I hope it has also given you a desire to spend more time in this often misunderstood or misused book. I hope you'll accept the call to read and heed the words of this prophecy. Let this reminder of Christ's return cause you to take stock, not of your earthly inventory, but of the treasure you have laid up in heaven. He is coming, and he's bringing his rewards with him. Are you one of those who will receive a just recompense of eternal punishment because you've never surrendered to Christ? For us Christians, what are you doing with your pound? Are you looking today to the one who gave us these promises? Do you know him? Is your relationship with him growing ever deeper? Is he central to your life? Do you anticipate the day when you'll meet him face to face? He which testifieth these things saith, Surely, I come quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this promise. There is no doubt in our minds that Jesus is coming again. Thank you that we do not have to wonder how things will end. We may not know when, we may not know all the details, but Lord, you've given us this message, you've given us this prophecy, and it gives us enough to know how we ought to live, to know how we ought to please you, and to know that every day we ought to be living in anticipation of Christ's coming. And I pray tonight that you would help us all to have that attitude. If nothing else, you just help us all to leave this building this evening saying in our minds, Jesus could come back today. Am I ready? Father, I pray most of all, if there's somebody here who does not know Christ as Savior, help them not to play around with that any longer. Help them recognize the gravity of the fact that Jesus could come back today. That they could stand before him face to face very soon. 
And Lord, help all of us as believers to recognize those facts as well. Thank you that we do not have to look forward to judgment, that we do not have to expect any punishment, despite all the ways that we've sinned against you. But Lord, help us recognize that you are coming with your rewards. Help us not be one on that day when you call us to account that we would say, I have what you've given me, but I have nothing else to show. Father, give us grace to be ready for your coming. Bless us in this time of invitation. Help us to surrender to whatever work it is that you desire to do in our hearts. We pray this in Christ's name. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, you can visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened and we want to encourage you to share this message with others. May the truth of God's word be your guide as you strive to follow Christ and make him known to others.